Today's episode of The Shamrock is brought to you by NetSuite. Successful companies know faster growth requires the right tools. If you're doing one, 10, or hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives a full picture of your business. Finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more, all in one place. Over 19,000 companies trust NetSuite, the world's number one cloud business system. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash listen. That's netsuite.com slash listen. Welcome to the latest episode of The Shamrock. I'm Pete Sampson, rejoined by Matt Fortuna in Chicago uh, after his worldwide travels. Matt, um, you had an interesting story from your trip to Boston that, that we're going to get into later in the show. Uh, spent some time with Phil Jakovic, former Notre Dame quarterback, potential Boston College starter this year. Uh, before we do that, I had sort of a... I don't, I think peace would be probably too dramatic of a ter- <laughs> <laughs> of a term to describe my uh, my look at Notre Dame's new recruiting strategy with uh, Brian Kelly more invested in the process or seemingly more involved at a minimum. Um, you know, some insights from recruiting coordinator Brian Polian on Kelly's involvement and sort of where the biggest delta is that they can affect moving forward. Also, Jack Swarbrick in there. Um, I asked him a few times about sort of the private air travel, investing more in infrastructure, and and I sort of tried to take a step back and catch up with a couple analysts, Barton Simmons, who's been on this podcast, Mike Farrell, who I used to work with at Rivals.com, and basically lay out, okay, if Notre Dame is going to be a top five, it's not just one thing. It's about eight different things that have to happen. Um, You've been covering Notre Dame a long time. Um, You've sort of seen... Uh, top prospects come in, flame out, click, go pro. Um, you've sort of seen Notre Dame on signing day over the years. Like, what what did you think of the story? Uh, what sort of struck you as most interesting as it sort of ties into Brian Kelly's commentary about where Notre Dame recruiting can go moving forward? Uh, I thought it was a really great story. I thought it had a lot of relevant and timely quotes and, frankly, perspective and numbers that – show just how hard it is to crack that upper echelon of recruiting when we're talking about really the big five programs that are signing all these five-star prospects year after year, Georgia, LSU, Ohio State, Alabama, and Clemson. Uh, It's very simple math and logic to dictate that, hey, if Notre Dame wants to crack that top five, that means one of those five has to drop off fairly dramatically. And there doesn't seem to be any sign of that happening anytime soon, given the coaching stability at those five places. Now, um, I do think that to just throw your hands up in the air the way Brian Kelly did essentially in 2017, as you outlined there, uh, is not the right answer. I I think his comments in Orlando about we can aim to be better is appropriate in in the way Notre Dame should be thinking. Um, I, I thought it was a good story. I thought it was an insightful story that left me learning a lot and also left me wondering at the end of it, okay, so how are they going to do this? Um, but that said, I, I can't help but think a lot of the Notre Dame brass there just comes off very defensive about a lot of stuff that both they put out there and that prospects they whiffed on put out there, sourced publicly on the record. You know, this isn't – I mean, yeah, we hear whispers like everyone else, but like a lot of this that they're talking about seems like – fully in reaction to the South Bend Tribune article and to Brian Kelly's comments that he volunteered down in Orlando 
and you know a, a number of other things. I mean, you know, they did their own signing day podcast last week, Brian Pullian and uh, Brian Kelly uh, in house. That you know, they, they're I think they were having fun with it more than anything when they said, you know, this is the podcast you need to come to for information. But you know what? No one here really ever talks publicly. You had to fly down to freaking <laughs> Tampa just to get five minutes of Brian Kelly for the first time in two months. I mean, uh, they just seem very defensive um, because whatever they were trying wasn't working to the level that, you know, they wanted to work at. And I mean, credit to them for finally, you know, recognizing that and doing something about it. But uh, they seem just very, very defensive, I think. You know, it's, it's, I guess I didn't take it that way. Um, It is weird. You know, I had to go down to Tampa to talk to Brian Kelly about it, but in some ways that was like the perfect setting for it because I mean, you know him, you've been to many of his press conferences. If you ask him, are you doing more in recruiting in a room with 25 reporters? Like the walls go up immediately and you're going to get a defensive sort of political answer. It was cool to actually get what I thought was a very authentic answer um, about, yeah, I can do more. I can be more involved. Mm -hmm. Like I can be part of the solution here, which I think a lot of people sort of read that or when it comes out, there's like, well, why does that mean you were part of the problem before? And I think that sort of like misses the point of okay they they were they were falling short in this way or they feel like they could reach higher he could be part of that like that's to me that's the story the story is like what you're doing moving forward opposed to why didn't you get there sooner um you know one of the reasons is the early signing period is just a few years old uh they you know could they have been maybe a cycle earlier on this um and get brian kelly out on the road of January 2019 and do what he's doing right now. Yeah, I guess, I mean, you could make that argument, but um, I, I am curious to see, and I, I pointed this out in the story. Like it's, I think it's easy to be motivated to get out and do the monotonous recruiting stuff early um, in January. I think it is a hell of a lot harder to do that. Once you get into August, September, October, November. I mean, even spring practice, I think, is kind of a grind. Or summer, when you want to be out right. doing other things, like actually disconnect for a minute. Um, and that it was one of the reasons I included the anecdote about the way Charlie Weiss recruited Manti Teo, because he put in, in an incredible amount of work, um, in addition to Brian Polian, uh, to get a guy that they had a very slim chance of landing. Um, but you have to be willing to put in that work on basically based on faith that it's going to pay off in the end. But when it does, I, I think this quote made it in the story, but you know, I mean, Brian Pulling said, when you get guys like that, that, that can change your life. I mean, Manti Notre Dame landing Manti Teo changed Brian Pullian's life. Right. Um, you know, that that's how he is still remembered in a good way. Um, you know, that, and you know, maybe Kyle Hamilton will change somebody's life around here. Uh, I think, you know, Jalen Smith's, Will Fuller, um, you know, Aaron Lynch, or yeah, not necessarily Aaron Lynch, more like Michael Floyd, Kyle Rudolph. Like, if you click on one of those, <laughs> that that can make a career for an assistant coach. Um, and if you win a national championship because of it, it can change your career for a head coach. Yeah, I, I wouldn't even just say change someone's life. I'd say change like 85 people's lives and the entire staff. I mean, yeah. when you look at the margin for error that a, a program like Notre Dame operates with, when you look at, I mean, it's easy to forget about now because they've been pretty good, but I mean, Brian Kelly's going into year three in 2012. They're unranked in the preseason. They have what looks like a murderer's row of a schedule. Uh, he hadn't really gone into the good graces of everybody just yet. He was coming off eight and five seasons. 
And the question following this program was the same one that had been following it pretty much for the last 18 years, which was, are they relevant? Can they ever be good again? And they answer that resoundingly by going 12-0 and in the regular season. But what, six of those games maybe were decided by one possession or less? And like Manti Teo may have single-handedly been responsible for swinging the fates of multiple of those games. So like, yeah, I don't think we're being prisoners of the moment or, or being hyperbolic when we say that, you know, putting in that extra work to have a chance to maybe get a once-in-a-generation type of player who then would make a once-in-a-generation type of impact uh, really just change the complete tra- trajectory of the program. I mean, picture Brian Kelly um, and basically Notre Dame as a whole without that 2012 season. Let's say they go 8-5 and five again in 2012. I mean, three straight 8-5 and five seasons. And, you know, the starting quarterback gets kid out of school the next year. Warp suspensions come in 14. Like, it, it – it, I don't want to say Brian Kelly got a mulligan because of 2012 because he had a tremendous team that he was responsible for assembling, but like the entire history of this program is forever. He got the benefit of the doubt. That's for it's, sure. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, like, if that means you got to wake up early and make a few extra phone calls to maybe have a chance, even though you don't think you really do, like that's what you got to do. You're at Notre Dame; they're not going to come to you like they come to Alabama and LSU. That's just the nature of the beast. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that one of the other interesting points in there is the as I talked to Brian Polian about um, you know where Notre Dame can essentially it's a story of how can you take your recruiting from good to great. Uh, he talked about sort of the early scouting. I there I do think you're seeing a reaction to that early on with um, I believe they've offered more than twenty. Uh, 2022 kids like basically kids that are wrapping up their sophomore year in high school um that's they feel like they need to be on there earlier and then to me i think the solution there is you know how do you scout better you invest in that i you know i wonder if notre dame will come come around and think like okay we've been putting a bunch of resources into social media and whiz bang videos and graphics and all that stuff and you still have to do that but if I was Notre Dame, I would look at I would look at sort of this mission to move forward and think we need to find one or two more Bill Reeses to stick in those offices uh, to help with this because I think Bill Reese does a really good job, but he's he's kind of a, a one man band up there it, from from my perception of things. Among full timers, yeah, you know, I should point the, the one part that really struck with me the one quote from your story uh, when Brian Pauline's uh, talking about Brian Kelly here said quote. He's a tremendous communicator. He makes everybody in the room feel at ease. He can connect with everybody from the high school prospect to the parent, to the little sister, to the high school coach. He's a tremendous communicator. That home visit with Meyer uh, was phenomenal, end quote. And this is talking about uh, some of the home visits that that Brian Kelly made in the immediate aftermath of Chip Long getting fired. Uh, Yeah, I think Brian Pulley nailed it. And I think, you know, you alluded to this a little bit, you know, in terms of talking to Brian Kelly in a smaller gathering in Tampa. Like, he is really, really, really good in the right setting. Um, which I think in some ways has worked against him as far as the narrative goes that he's not recruiting at the level he should be at because I think it's very easy to read quotes like that, to have dealt with Brian Kelly in person in small settings, uh, few and far between as they are, and wonder, like, why isn't this guy a more dynamic recruiter? I mean, picturing him in a living room versus some of the other guys in his business in living rooms who are head coaches, I mean, I think I'd have a lot better time listening to Brian Kelly tell (laughs) stories than I would some others. So, yeah. I guess the next question naturally is, so why doesn't he do more of that? And it sounds like he is doing more of that. Um, But, you know, even the early signing period, like I just, 
it's different and it's a change for everybody. I get it. And it's a more dramatic change probably for Notre Dame than it is others. But you know who was, you know, everyone liked this early signing period in 2017 when it happened. The only people who didn't were Nick Saban and Urban Meyer. And last I checked, Alabama and Ohio State, <laughs> even without Urban Meyer, aren't going anywhere on the recruiting trail. They adjust because that's what good coaches and good recruiters do. And I think Notre Dame is finally doing that. Yeah, it's, uh, I think that the other sort of, I don't know if it was a news item as much as something that we've talked about that was confirmed by Jack Swarbrick that if Notre Dame needs to ease coordinator travel, if they need to get Clark Lee or <laughs> or Tommy Reese uh, on a private jet. I feel like we need our names on that. I know, play, right? Like, like whenever that comes. At, at a minimum, <laughs> we should be able to do it behind the scenes on the first coordinator private po- travel. podcast on the plane, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have Tommy and Clark be on the show with us. Um <laughs> I, if they do that, if they really invest in that, that's a, that's a material change. Sorbrick was very um, quick to push back on the notion that, like, well, if we did this, it's going to solve everything. Uh, and, I mean, he's right. It's not. Um, he is, he's also not a big believer in sort of the, the uh, I guess, relevance of being a five-star prospect or not. Um, however, if you're at – the LSU, Georgia, Ohio State, Clemson, uh, Alabama group. If you have a five-star that doesn't work out and Notre Dame has had five stars that doesn't work out, if you can replace them with another five-star, that's a good place to be. Um, Correct. You know, and, and that's where Notre Dame is trying to go. Um, so that that's where being a five-star matters. And if you can get Lance Taylor and Tommy Reese on a plane to North Carolina to see five-star running back Will Shipley, who's sort of like one of their top guys of regardless of position um, in the 2021 cycle, you do it. Um, and I'm not sure Notre Dame was always willing to sort of swallow hard and, and pay that bill before. They always could do it, but I think they they see the uh, return on investment now in a way that maybe they did not before. So that's to me, that that was the kind of third third significant part of that story that you'd be like, okay, you're doing things differently moving forward. I, you know, personally, I don't think Notre Dame's going to end up with a top five class next year. But as I tried to point out the story, you're better off for the chase. Um, you're better off if you end up eighth Correct. and you're trying to push to five because the difference between twelfth and eighth it could be. Signing two Kyle Hamiltons. Um, that's really what a five-star prospect or two would do for you. It would move you up three or four slots, maybe five or six slots in the team rankings. And if Notre Dame does that, we all saw what Kyle Hamilton looked like last season. You know, that that's how you put together a roster that can compete uh, not only to make the playoff, but win in the playoff. And that that's where Notre Dame is trying to go. And, I, you know, I, our colleagues, uh, colleagues slash bosses, um, Bruce Feldman and Stu Mandel have uh, the Audible podcast. I'm sure many of our listeners listen to that as well. And our producer, John Hayes, has some audio of Stu Mandel talking about uh, a mailbag question. And, you know, did he leave Notre Dame out mistakenly uh, on a question about who can win a national title in the next decade that hasn't won one in the previous decade? Here's that. Here's that audio. The question was, which program that didn't win a national title this past decade could you see winning one? this coming decade and obviously who knows who the coaches of these teams will be by the end of the decade or what college football will even look like by that point but no I still think that there's enough working against Notre Dame institutionally Uh, I think they make life harder for themselves as an independent Um, their recruiting pool is always going to be a little bit limited by the academic standards 
that I just I don't think they're in that group of programs that have that check off all the boxes where if you've got the right coach and I do think they have the right coach right now they can win the national title they can go 33 and 6 in three years they can go to good bowl games Uh, I just don't think they can win the national title Matthew your thoughts well Peter it's funny that Stewart says that because I listened to that segment that they were played off from a week earlier on the Audible, and uh, I believe they mentioned Michigan and Penn State as, as potential teams that have not won the title that could win the title. And next second, I don't know if Michigan was actually, but Penn State I think was one of them. And when you mentioned when they mentioned Penn State, listening it in real time last week, my reaction was you know what the the follow up questioners was, which is. Well, if you're going to put Penn State in there, you should probably put Notre Dame in there. Notre Dame has actually been to the playoff and come close to making it in other years as well. And, uh, like, do I think Notre Dame's going to win a national title in the next decade? I, I wouldn't bet on it. I, I wouldn't say it's impossible either. The dynamics of the sport change so suddenly that, you know, who would have thought Clemson, South Carolina, uh, with the interim coach 11 years ago, would turn into the greatest modern football power that, that there is right now. Um so I, I would never say never to anything. Um, I would throw Notre Dame on that short list of teams that hasn't won it that could contend for one. I, I wouldn't say they're going to win one, but if you're throwing Penn State in there, and if we're going to talk about Michigan, because we're always going to talk about Michigan when we talk about Notre Dame, <laughs> I, I don't know how we don't talk about Notre Dame. I mean, um, yeah, Pennsylvania is a good recruiting base, but they're not top dog in their own division. And the best player in Pennsylvania signed with Notre Dame two years ago, who I wrote about, who we'll get to uh, in a little bit, as, as, as well as several other great players from the state of Pennsylvania, particularly Philly, uh, who have ended up at Notre Dame in recent years. Uh, and I think that goes into a larger point, too, about recruiting. We talk so much about, oh, can Notre Dame do this? Can Notre Dame do that? I, I, you know, I just feel like we never hear people complaining about Michigan and Penn State. And I think Notre Dame has a lot more going for them than those two schools do from a recruiting infrastructure standpoint and from what they're able to sell kids not just regionally, obviously, but around the country. So I think, yeah, as unique as the place is, as different as the place is, I don't put too much into independence. I think independence is a good thing, although I can understand how that can hamper you from maybe competing or getting into the playoff in a couple different years. Uh, But I think overall that's obviously not positive. I just think, you know, we talk a little bit too, like, delicately, I think, about Notre Dame. Like, oh, can they do this? Can they do that? Like, why the hell not? Like, come on. (laughs) Like, they are – uh, college football blue blood. Yes, they're in Indiana, but they've still got a lot going from them, from a history, from an infrastructure, from a brand, and from a talent standpoint than like 98% of the other schools around the country. I don't think it's as huge of a riddle as we try to make it sometimes. The notion of independence being a hindrance, I don't understand at all. It, that makes no sense to me whatsoever. I, I can understand it that they probably got to go perfect to make the playoff. But. How, Which no one how else much has were to do. we talking about Clemson the last couple of years that if they had lost to Syracuse they were out, or they lost to North Carolina they were out? You know that. Yeah, I mean those schools fair. had to. The SEC gets the the sort of free pass on one loss, but that's it. I think everybody else has pretty much has to go independent to make or uh, not independent has to go undefeated to make it. Um, Notre Dame's in that group. They, they probably need it a little bit more than everybody else, but I just don't think there's this huge difference between. 11 and 1 Notre Dame getting left out versus, I mean, the Pac 12 hasn't made it in quite a while. Um, you know, the Big 12 has been sort of on the block. Like, Oklahoma clearly could have easily could have not made it last year with, um, you know, a, a one loss, I think a one loss record. So that's, 
to me that the independence makes Notre Dame a little bit different. I think it gives them something to sell. Um, the academic standards, that's a real thing. I think if you ask people around Notre Dame, the perception is that if you gave if you gave them a list of the top 50 players in the country, they could probably be involved with about 15 to 18 of them. Um, that's a that's a real challenge, but I also think that's a there's a benefit to that. There's some self selection that goes on with Notre Dame, where the kids that are good enough to be looked at by Notre Dame are naturally going to look at Notre Dame because they actually want to, you know get a degree or go through a, a academic course load that's just a little bit different than what the average um, you know top prospect wants the right coach is interesting though because I do like let's say you could find the urban Meyer recruiting dynamic of a head coach just without the all all the other urban Meyer stuff like the negative hmm. the negative baggage I think Notre Dame would kill it in recruiting I think they would be a top five yeah. program at that point because what they're selling is still so very different and distinct. This is a point that Napoleon made to be when we were talking, and I wrote it this way. It's like Notre Dame, in some ways, I think is more distinct today than they were 10 years ago and more distinct uh, 10 years ago than they were 20 years ago. You know, Maybe the, the television contract is something sort of everyone has only in the sense that everyone's on TV, but online classes athletic dorms going to mass all that stuff um you know there's really nowhere to hide academically to me those are the things that make you different in a good way if, uh if you're notre dame even if that means that you can't recruit all the all the prospects that alabama and lsu can sort of get into school without thinking twice about yeah i agree i mean i think um if you're a private school kid in high school that's a school that should be on your radar and a school that you're probably going to want to have a little bit of an attachment to, even if it's from far away geographically. I just don't, uh, yeah, there are challenges there, but yeah, I mean, what, like from the outside, looking in, how do you differentiate Alabama, LSU and Georgia right now? You know what I mean? Yeah, like they're, they're, they're all just the same big thing. SEC state schools. Exactly. So why not be different? I don't know. I feel like kids, a lot of kids, at least smart kids, think that way. Um, so I, I, I just, I just have a hard time wrapping around, wrapping my head around the fact or the idea that like it's impossible to recruit at a high level here. I just, they're they're pretty close to it now. They're just not at that next echelon there, that next echelon yet. And um, I, I think they're working toward it. I mean, better late than never, right? I mean, you, this is somewhat related, but not really. But you know, it's in the news right now. I mean, you had a tweet during Mark D'Antonio's retirement press conference about a week ago about to the effect of look how miserable he looks, you know, yada, yada, yada. And you see a guy like that and it becomes easy to understand why Brian Kelly maybe operates the way he does. Um, and isn't fourth and goal every single day, every single minute, bringing down the overall mood and energy level of everyone around him. Like he gives his assistants autonomy, whether that's too much or too little is a matter of debate, but like he, he has kind of figured out what works for him as far as how to manage how to manage the day-to-day -day operations in Notre Dame football. And I think Mark D'Antonio is a great contrast to that because it is very easy to get burnt out um, in this business. Yeah. And once that happens, Urban Meyer think, you know, there's just no coming in back particular, from it. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, kind of recruited himself into out of a head coaching job because it just it drove him you – know, he didn't have anything left. It burnt, he burned himself out. Um, right. Brian Kelly, It's it was funny. I was down in Tampa and uh, – when he got out of sort of the SUV that they took from the airport outside the country club where the event was, somebody was like, 
who's that guy that got out standing in who was riding with with coach and someone was like that is brian kelly that is that is coach and i'm like oh like he looks so like relaxed and refreshed um and he does like i I think that he's sort of found his groove here um you know he clearly can do more and be more involved in recruiting but i think he's just sort of in a good way that a lot of head coaches never get to and that was something that he mentioned to me uh during the summer when i sat down with him because you know i mean you know how sort of he a lot of coaches are like this they don't like to sort of reflect on their own success uh or take a step back and for once he was like you know what i this is the job that i always thought notre dame would be i'm basically like loving life right now he could enjoy the view from where he was and i don't think a lot of coaches ever get an opportunity to do that because they're under the gun all the time so i I give him credit for kind of getting into a good good headspace with that um this is a terrible segue to phil jakovic but let's get there um you were okay just follow up really quickly i'm curious since we since it's been about a 24 hours since or a little bit more since your story ran have you gotten any pushback feedback positive negative from people in the goo uh since that story ran. yes i not pushback's the wrong word um somebody reached out to me and said that was a really fair account of what we're trying to do here and i said thanks like somebody when somebody says you you did a fair job that's like a pretty high compliment for a reporter um so i told him that and i said thanks so yeah that that was sort of the only pushback i got and it's not really pushback it's just more feedback um, right that that's like this is a complicated issue and you did a really good job explaining why it's complicated um and gave a pretty fair accounting of of what we're trying to do and why we haven't been able to do some things some things where, where we can improve um so that's i will take that all day um i, I just really want to give you a, a chance to pay you. yourself on the back on this podcast I, you didn't do enough of that without yeah. me the last two weeks <laughs> Um, well, I I thoroughly enjoyed your Phil Jakovic story. If you want, if I can uh, say so, I uh, thank you. If we get into this mutual admiration society, um, you went out to Boston, spent all the time with Jeff Halfley, um, and some time with Phil Jakovic, former quarterback. What what did you take away from that? I thought that he was pretty guarded with you, but at the same time, when I mean, we both have gotten to know him a little bit guarded is sort of like not his natural like those are not his default settings like he's just kind of like kind of a fun dude to you would think he would be fun to hang out with um but he he clearly has an attorney working on the waiver there yeah there's what did you make of sort of his state out there yeah, first off, credit Boston College. I mean, they put him out there for a press conference when he initially signed and um you know, he didn't really talk at all about Notre Dame there, nor did he a whole lot with, with me when we sat down, but uh, they made him available to me to sit there. And uh, Jason Bond, their SID, had sat in on parts of the interview. And it was funny because, like you said, he was pretty guarded. And yet Jason afterwards said, like, I can tell you know Phil uh, because he was a lot better with you than he was at the podium. And I was like, was he? Like, And I guess, you know, reading the comments before and after, I mean, he did elaborate a little bit, although he wouldn't go down the road of, why he was leaving Notre Dame or how long that had really been in the works. But uh, he definitely seems hardened. Um, he definitely – I mean, he looked physically, and I, I hadn't you know, really seen him face-to-face better part of a year or maybe even two, and, you know, night and day physically. He just looks a lot bigger, more mature, more assertive. Um, with the part that really stuck out to me was – and I'll read the quote from the story 
Um, as he said, you know, I've always loved football, but the past couple of years through a lot of things that happened, I was losing like the love for the game. And that was really heartbreaking for me. Um, and, and that's a part that um, I think was probably the most striking yeah, of everything same. he said. He wouldn't say anything about why it happened. Um, you know, I, I talked to as many people as humanly possible in background and no one really offered much or, or seemed to even know much other than the fact that, you know, privately a few insisted it had nothing to do with playing time, um, which, you know, if, if, if it did yeah i think it would be very logical and easy to stick around for another year um and get eligible immediately without a waiver and have two years to play anywhere else but uh it, it came together really quickly and, and kind of naturally with boston college i mean he puts his name in the portal on the 8th which i believe is a wednesday and by friday he's flying with his family uh to boston and he's meeting with jeff halfley frank signetti martin charman the athletic director and he commits on the spot on Saturday. Um, he wanted to make this quick and easy. He wanted to be somewhere in the spring. Uh, they wanted to get the waiver process done with as quickly as humanly possible. Who knows what the status of that is or how long that will take. But, you know, BC is certainly hoping for for their sake that um, it gets approved because Anthony Brown had put his name in, his, in the portal. That was their uh, multi-year starting quarterback. So they don't have much in the way of experience under center right now. Um, but he seemed genuinely happy. He's living with... Uh, he's living in a big kind of multiplex dorm with, I think, you know, five basketball players and, and two uh, five football players, and two basketball players. Uh, one of whom is the son of uh, Monday Night Football announcer Joe Tessitore, the kicker uh, for Boston <laughs> College, Sean Tessitore. Uh, he he seems very happy and kind of you know kind of a second wind, so to speak. Um, but he just wouldn't really go down the road of Notre Dame. He's Moving forward, uh, said he has no hard feelings. He doesn't regret anything. You know, he had committed there as a sophomore in high school, and he was very resolute in that commitment. Uh, through the ensuing two and a half years, he pretty much called off all other suitors. Um, he said he's still close to a lot of people from his recruiting class, and, you know, he'll, uh, he seems to have, you know, nothing but good thoughts about. Uh, all those people in regards to Notre Dame. There's been no contact, obviously, with, with him or anyone from the coaching staff or personnel side due to uh, the hiring of a lawyer and, and the pending waiver. But uh, they'll be curious to see, you know, if anything else comes out and, you know, whether this thing gets approved or not because there's really no rhyme or reason right. um, if you really want to go case by case over what has or hasn't gotten approved in recent years by the NCAA. So uh, we'll see what happens. I thought it was interesting that uh, Jeff Halfley picked him up from the airport. You know, the, getting in, in and out of Logan is not uh, uncomplicated, and I'm sure Jeff Halfley has a million <laughs> things going on, but it probably speaks to how important uh, Phil Jakovic was to the vision of whatever Boston College is going to be moving on. Um, to, did I understand you correctly? You said, like, playing time didn't have anything to do with it? That's what I gathered. Um from talking to some people on background, that's pretty much the only thing I could gather from talking to people on background. Now, no one wanted to say that on the record okay. um, or much of anything on the record beyond what I put in the story, but um, that's that was the information that was that uh, conveyed to me. kind yes. of an interesting take because I would think playing time would have everything to do with it. And I mean, as you mentioned in the story, like there are a lot of people around Notre Dame that thought he was going to be great, head coach included, and they ended up making a quarterback change during his freshman season, but it just wasn't to him. Um, right. So I, I, Boston College is going to be a real fun team to watch if he gets the waiver because you know I think there's some people around Notre Dame, um, not inside Notre Dame, but cover Notre Dame, 
who are like hell bent that Djokovic has some really unique physical talents that somehow as, as if Notre Dame was holding them back. Um, I really am just sort of curious to see him play for real uh, and not right. mop up. See, like, okay, what what do you actually have here? Because uh, it's in all the practices we saw. I mean, I think it's one thing for Notre Dame fans who just watch the games and see Djokovic in there at the end and have a little success, you know, here or there. Not a lot, but some say like, well, if you just you know took the took the handcuffs off and let him go, you would. You'd have you'd see how especially is like all the practices we saw. I'm not sure that I could ever point to a game a practice where I thought, yeah, he's really closing the gap on Ian Book in any way. So, is he better than a former walk-on at Boston College? I would say absolutely. But uh, how that looks on Saturdays, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated to see. But it sounds like Boston College is betting pretty hard on this guy. You know, it's funny. I, I asked him, you know, I said, look, you basically haven't played for two years. You've been playing quarterback since you were fifth grade. You always talk about how much you love the game, how much you love playing. You played multiple sports in high school. You were always playing something, playing, playing, playing. You haven't really done any of that for two years. And there's a chance, you know, if this waiver doesn't go through that you're looking at three straight years without playing. You know, what what have you done? Like, what what? how are you getting better? What are people going to see from you uh, when you finally do take the field as a starter in college football? And he said, quote, I feel like I'm I just feel like I'm experienced the little bit that I did get to play. I got to see the speed of the game and how things are done. I got to see a team that was in the playoff and got to practice a lot. I've practiced a good amount. I think the other part of it is I've always considered myself a little bit of a gamer. I've never been like a camp quarterback, a great camp quarterback. I think my strongest ability is kind of like an intangible once a real game's on. I think I'm a different player, end quote. Um, so that gamer part, I think, is you know, what sticks out, stands out you know, when we talk about what we saw as far as shortcomings on the practice field. Um, now, look, I mean, if he's eligible, he's playing and starting forever, I think, in Boston College. Yeah. Like, it's just the state of that program right now, uh, regardless of whether this guy turns out to be the next Joe Montana or just another guy. But, um, I mean, I, I, I really want to see him play, and I think a lot of people really want to see him play because – no one ran away from the hype around this guy. In fact, they, they really encouraged it. And I'm talking about people at Notre Dame, both on and off the record, who are usually the first to, to you know, put the, uh, the training wheels on, so to speak, and, and tamp down the hype. Like, these guys were very, very excited about the possibility of him coming in as a true freshman and unseating Brandon Wimbush and maybe even starting – you know, as soon as week one that year, because when you looked at the 2017 team, uh, not perfect, but really dominant throughout large parts of the season, they just couldn't figure it out at quarterback. And, you know, Ian Book, to his credit, ruined a lot of people's plans in that regard because he ended up being so much better than I think anyone ever really gave him credit for. Yeah, absolutely. It's it, It'll be fun to watch to see how how his career goes at Boston College because, I mean, look, we could, we could do a rundown of – Notre Dame transfer quarterbacks, it's very hard to find guys who went somewhere else and, and found something better. Um, you know, it r- rarely does it seem to work out. We're, but, we're, uh, what, Dane Chris, seems a bit Colson, Zaire, anyone else? Yeah, Hendricks. Hendrick, Hendricks would be the guy who transferred and like, had a really good experience, I think. Chris was okay. Um, but yeah, Golson and Zaire. Wimbush, kind of not so hot. Yeah, those were all kind of struggles. Um, Jerkovic's maybe in a different spot, new head coach, probably a good time to get in there. But um, it would be it would be very unique if it uh, if it really really clicked for him there. But it'd be it'd be fun to watch. It'd be I, I 
I don't think that he, their Notre Dame fans sort of have the affinity for him that they had for Wimbush when he left, but um, there's certainly, I think, a curiosity around here to see how it goes. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, Brandon Wimbush was just not that Phil isn't by any means. I've got to know Phil better than I have at Brandon, but Brandon's one of those guys you see him talk at a group interview and you just want him to win. <laughs> you know, like he just, he was so earnest in everything he did and it just never could seem to click for whatever reason. And, you know, I don't think we could say that was just an Notre Dame problem based on how it turned out very quickly for him at UCF with a position switch like three or four games in. Um, but, yeah, that guy definitely got a standing ovation from the Florida State game when he started again to uh, the playoff when news broke that he was leaving. I mean, everyone was was very, very happy for him. All right, well, I think that we're going to wrap up the Shamrock there. Uh, if you're – if your interest has been piqued and somehow you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, which, I mean, I, I just can't even imagine at this point. But if you're not and you're listening to this uh, show on the app, if you click the uh, notes, the details, um, there will be links to the story, both my recruiting big feature and then Matt's story on Phil Jacobic. You can read them right right there when you're listening to, this, listening to this podcast. I don't know if we'll be back next week or not, um, but... We will sort of be on a semi-weekly basis uh, throughout the off season. When, whenever Notre Dame formally finishes off its coaching staff, maybe we can do something oh, yeah. on, on that. Um, didn't mention that on this show. But uh, John McNulty, almost certainly the tight ends coach. Um, and I will I will mention Mike Mickens as a highly likely candidate for cornerbacks. If he accepts the, the offer that Notre Dame made, we'll see. Uh, but at some point, the calendar will flip to uh, 2020 in spring practice and Notre Dame will have a full uh, staff of assistants and the Shamrock can uh, mine that a little bit more. Um, I think while some other interesting features coming up as well that we can uh, pick apart as we did the recruiting feature and the Phil Jakovic uh, story as well. So until our next episode of the Shamrock, you've been listening. Uh, I'm Pete Sampson. He's Matt Fortuna. Thanks for being with us until the next episode of the Shamrock. Thanks for joining us.